Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Travel to Europe this summer. What is that look like. It's going to look a little different than perhaps it normally would. And we've got some tips for you in today's interview with Paige McClanahan, who's an American travel journalist, actually living in the French Alps. So before we even get into some of the travel tips in Europe, we talk about how she ended up in the French Alps with her British husband and why we as humans are sometimes drawn to places we've never even visited. Has that happened to you before? For some reason, you have a pull to a place, like a magnet. Are you thinking about someplace right now? <laughs> it's possible. Uh, we also share some tips on finding little ways to stay connected to your home country's culture when you're living abroad or, or overseas for an extended period of time. She shares her experience working with the UN and collaborating with an international team, which I think might become more common as remote work continues to explode. We talk about the gray areas of over-tourism and the selfish side of us being travelers. Hey, we want to see certain things. We're paying to go somewhere. So how do we be sensitive and be conscious, but at the same time, get the most out of our trip? She shares a great resource for finding unique protected areas in Europe. We talk about some of the side benefits of visiting natural areas. And overall, traveling to Europe this summer, is it worth it? That's on the agenda as well today. So much more. You're going to love the interview. Let's dive in to this show now. So buckle up, strap in, grab your favorite beverage. You know, I think about Europe, I'm thinking immediately about a, a little double espresso, I don't know, standing in a, some kind of small, charming cafe packed with locals and sipping on a double espresso. Anyway, grab your favorite beverage, strap in, thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is a show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. We're talking about my home continent today. Well, not my original home continent. I'm from the USA, but I've been living in Europe for quite some time, and it's been strange 
because I'm in Oslo, Norway, and during the summer, you see a lot of tourists around the city. And this summer, not so much. Not so much. It feels pretty barren downtown, but I feel like things are trickling in a little bit as people sort of peek their heads out and come out of the uh, woodworks <laughs> to start exploring the world again, which is exciting and I'm sure a little bit scary and also new in some ways. I feel like we're taking a fresh approach uh, to travel. This has been some kind of crazy reset. I don't know exactly what it means yet, uh, but for many of us, this pandemic has been a reset and can cause us to look at things a little bit differently, our lives, what we might want to do over the coming months or years, and maybe how we approach travel. I feel like it spills into everything in our lives. So I don't know if you're planning a trip to Europe this summer, but it's a popular place to go. So I recorded this episode for you to get it out so you could get some tips and some ideas. And of course, we ended up going in a lot of different directions in this interview. And one thing, I can talk about this at the end of the interview, uh, Paige, our guest today, she did something that I'm a big fan of, that I've done myself. And I'm not sure if this is something that you've done or have considered doing, but I think this is a wonderful approach to the stationary traveler, the travel lover who is still going to have a home base somewhere. So I'll talk about that after the interview. So stick around for that. Now, please enjoy this conversation, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. I have the pleasure of talking today with Paige McClanahan. She is an American travel journalist and a regular contributor to the New York Times. She has lived in five countries since she left the United States in 2008 and has now settled down with her family in the French Alps. And you can check out her work over at pagemcclanahan.com. I will leave that link in the show notes. And what's really cool is when you go to that website, the first thing you see, it says, I write about travel and tourism from my base in the French Alps. And I just thought, wow, that's cool. I can't, I can't wait to hear how she ended up there. So anyway, formally, Paige, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, well done with my last name. Few people get that on a first try. So um, and yeah, thanks for making, mentioning the website. And um, I spent a long time trying to craft that sentence. So glad it spoke to you. But um, yeah, I feel pretty lucky to be where I am. Uh, so I have to tell you, there's a, a bit of a story about the last name thing. I didn't even think twice because I went to Penn State University and there's a very famous store there called McClanahan's. It's it's almost like the original Walmart, but a mini, very mini version, right? It's got it's got really? everything. It's got like the the CVS like drugstore thing. It's got the the knickknacks. It's got a place where you can get sandwiches. You know, this is before kind of like, and it's small wow. and quaint and family owned. And it's called McClanahan's. And I used to work there. And I also used to get a lot of subs there. So anyway. <laughs> I'll have to make, I'm going to have to make a pilgrimage sometime. Usually the only, if usually if people have heard of McClanahan before, it's from um, Rue McClanahan, who was Blanche in the Golden Girls, the actress who played Blanche. A golden so, Girl. Yeah, I, you know, made perhaps a distant cousin, no known relation. Um, but okay, McClanahan's in, in Western Pennsylvania, you said, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, Penn State University, State Penn College. State. Pennsylvania. Okay, sorry, Penn State. Hopefully okay. it's still there. I don't know. 
All right. So how did you end up all the places in the world in the French Alps? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it's kind of a long story. Um, it's okay. We have time. Okay. Okay. So, um, I grew up in the United States. I'm from Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina, originally born and raised like one place, you know, I graduated from high school with the same kids I was in ballet class with when I was three, you know, very sort of steady childhood. But, um, when I was in graduate school, I did an internship in Geneva, Switzerland. And, um, as a sort of summer between my two years of grad school. And I loved it. And I loved the job. And I loved being in Geneva. And then I met a guy, this cute British guy who worked on the floor below me, and um, who's now my husband and father of my two children. You know, an internship turned into a job. So I moved to Geneva and we lived in Geneva for a while. And then, and while we were living in Geneva, um, we love, like my husband and I both love the outdoors. We love hiking. And where we live now is about an hour from Geneva. And so we kind of got to know this valley just as a sort of hiking and skiing destination when we were living in Geneva, and we just fell in love with it. And then from Geneva, we ended up moving around to the play, you know, to several places. Um, and along the way, we got married and had one child and had another child. And then when child number two was about two years old, we thought, maybe now we should sort of like settle in somewhere and where in the world, if we could pick anywhere in the world to settle in, where would we, and raise our children, where would we want that to be? And we're like, that place, you know, that part of France, that was pretty cool. And my husband is British and this was just right around, just after the Brexit vote had happened. So we knew this sort of clock was ticking on a British person being able to settle in a European country so we were living in Kenya at the time. We were in Nairobi. And um, and we thought, you know what? If we're ever going to do this move without a sort of a work permit to pull us in, now is the time. So we, um, yeah, we were both working for the UN, actually, in Nairobi. And we quit our jobs and moved to a village of about, I think, officially like 800 people um, in France. And now we're both self-employed and our daughters are in the local school. And um, we've been here for about three years and are hoping to stay long enough to um, apply for French nationality. Um, so yeah, it's, I, th I feel like we were kind of, in our earlier moves, um, we were down in West Africa and then we were in England and when we were in East Africa before coming here, it, it was almost like we were sort of dating around for our long-term host country. <laughs> um, and here's where we ended up. So, yeah, so no, I'm I'm self-employed and my husband's self-employed and um, we do a lot of hiking and a lot of skiing. So it's not bad. Doesn't sound too bad at all. Can you share the name of the village or the area or the valley? or? Yeah, where? yeah, yeah. So we're kind of um, between Geneva and Chamonix, sort of as the crow flies. Um, and uh, it's our little village is called Sixt Vera Cheval, which means... Sixt, S-I-X-T, and then Fer à Cheval is, means horseshoe in French because at the end of our road, um, there is an, a spectacular natural area, which is like a sort of a big kind of rock, natural rock sort of amphitheater with waterfalls coming off the sides. And that's known as like the, le Fer à Cheval, the horseshoe, because it's sort of in a horseshoe shape. So yeah, we're kind of one valley over from... Chamonix, so Mont Blanc, you can't see Mont Blanc from our house, but the Mont Blanc picture on my website 
actually that view of Mont Blanc is from, uh, I didn't take that picture. That's a, you know, uh, someone else took that picture, but, um, you can get to that view within a, a pretty short drive of our house. Sounds like paradise. But what do you like about the French culture? That must have been part of the decision, right? It's not just, there are a lot of places you can live and hike and have a mountain lifestyle. Why there? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I mean, I think part of it goes back to, I'm going to embarrass myself here, but um, when I was in high school, I mean, even starting from when I was like 11 or 12, I was a huge French dork. Like I was just kind of obsessed with France and all things French and um, the language. And when I was 16, I spent um, a summer in France. That was my first real kind of, yeah, definitely my first solo travel experience was I did um, like six weeks in France uh, on an exchange um, when I was 16. And, um, and that really helped my language skills and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's something about the um, the traditions and the the history of France. Gosh, I mean, just like spout some cliches now, but there's something about it that just feels like a good fit for me um, and for and for our family. And um, yeah, so I don't know. So finding you know being able to use French, and I still love my French isn't perfect, but I love working on it all the time. So being able to live in a place where I have the mountains, which I've also always been drawn to, and um, and I get to use this language that I really love, um, has been great. And yeah, other aspects of the culture, of course, we can talk about the food. I mean, our daughters are in, you know, a sort of a normal school here. They go to the cantine, sort of like the school cafeteria most days of the week. And they have a four course meal, you know, on China silverware. <laughs> it always finishes with a sort of a, a local cheese, you know, and there are like emails going around, like the the parents' email list about like the types of cheese that ought to be offered and not offered, and you know. So <laughs> it was interesting moving here from Kenya because when when we moved here, our younger daughter was two and our older daughter was four and a half, and in Kenya, people just love children, and um, they give children like you know random like security guards will just like stop and coo at your baby and children are given gifts constantly in shops. And if you're in, at the airport or in any sort of line anywhere and you have a child under the age of say three, like you were just brought to the front. Like people say, oh, it's a child, you know, it's a baby, like go to the front. France is a little bit different to put it mildly. Um, there's not a whole lot of indulgence sort of in children. So that, that was a bit of a, you know, not a shock, but a, a big change, a big adjustment coming from Kenya. Um, but yeah, I got to say like our kids, eat a lot more foods than I did when I was their age. And they, I'll say they can have very good table manners, although they don't always. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that when I was that age, uh, the only cheese I was eating came out of an individually wrapped plastic wrapper. <laughs> Uh, maybe it was Velveeta or one of those. <laughs> I didn't even like cheese unless it was like on a pizza until I think I was like 10 or something. And our kids talk about like, oh, can you tell, is this Comté? Is it like 12 mois or 18 mois affiné? Like, is it how old, how refined, like, how I aged, don't know. how aged is the cheese that you bought, mama, you know? Um, anyway, so they're, they're teaching me. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm wondering, just going back to what you said about 
kind of the fascination with I think the words you used that you were a French dork. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, I like thousand I ask anyone yeah. who knew me <laughs> age like sixteen. I was like, oh, that was that yeah. French dork. Yeah. I always had this draw to Colorado when I was living in the States before I'd even been there. I find it strange that certain people have this yearning for a place they've never visited. There are sites to see all over the world, you know. Uh but I feel like it's more than just the sights there. There's some other deeper attraction to a place, even though you've never been before. Why is that? Where does what is that all about? I don't know. Do you know that's an excellent question? But um, yeah, gosh, I'm not going to come up with a great answer to that question, other than that I have the exact same question myself. I don't know if it's something that's that's sort of innate. I mean, I guess one thing that I will say with me and and French in France is that my mom was a French major in college and so started um, and had always loved France. And like her first trip overseas was to um, Francophone Switzerland when I think she was 16. So she um, kind of instilled it in me a bit. But then my sister, who's three years older than me, was a complete sort of Spanish, you know, she loved Spanish and she loved the beach. I was always into mountains and French. So here I am. My sister was into Spanish and the beach and now she lives in Honolulu. So no Spanish there, but the beach. But yeah, I that's no, that's a really good question because I've seen that in other people. And and I remember even when I was um I must have been eleven or twelve, I think it was in like seventh grade, however you all however old you are then. And um we had this assignment in social studies where you could pick any country in the world and do um a project on it. And I chose Switzerland, which is and I was like so fascinated with Switzerland and Fran and especially the Francophone part of Switzerland which is, of course, where I ended up meeting my husband and kind of starting this chapter of my life. So yeah, I don't know, there was some part of me kind of maybe knew in advance that these places would play a role in my future. If that sounds kind of woo-woo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally. It's, if you just take those two moments, you know, happenstance or whatever, like if you picked another place to do a report on when you were 12, I don't know. Would that change things? I mean, who knows? But it's just fascinating. Who knows? This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best 
off the beaten path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I love that you guys kind of just, you know, looked at, hey, what do we love? What do we've seen? Where do we want to live? Okay, we're going to go to this place, which isn't always an easy choice, especially when you have kids. I have two kids. We're in Norway because, well, we didn't handpick Norway, but my wife's Norwegian. So, you know, a lot of it's family related and, and things like that. But you guys are in a place where neither of you has family, it sounds like. So is that difficult? Do you know, I think it almost makes it easier. <laughs> Someone's it's like... Well, I should say, so we did live, we lived in England. We lived in Oxford for um, two years, kind of between stints in Africa. So we were in West Africa, then in Sierra Leone, and then Oxford for two years, and then down to Nairobi. And that was, that's actually where our first daughter was born. And we loved Oxford. And that was um, a really cool experience. Except, yeah, I think both of us, like my husband, you know, he grew up in suburban London. And, um, you know, he, he doesn't have a huge he doesn't feel a huge, huge pull back to his home country. I would say like, I don't feel a huge pull back to the United States. Um, and that, that we don't love and value our countries and especially our friends and family there. But I think we both just really appreciate living somewhere that puts us out of our comfort zone a little bit. And the fact that, um, we're here, it's sort of like, neutral territory for us. It's like, it's not sort of my, you know, me imposing my culture on our children or Ollie and my husband imposing his culture on our children. And we start, I don't know, we're, we're kind of creating our own families, sort of Anglo-American French existence here. So it's, yeah, it's almost like we get to create our own family culture instead of having to choose one that's sort of dominant, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's a, unique way of looking at it because yes, I mean, just being here in Norway, my kids, you know, they're, they're half American, but they're, they're Norwegian. They're doing all the Norwegian things. They're in Norwegian culture. And, and I hope, my hope is that they can identify with some of the U S side of things at some point. I don't know if that's wrong. Like you're, you're kind of bringing up a good point where it's like, Hey, maybe we can just craft our own sort of culture, but also it's hard to remove the your childhood, right? Like that feeling of going and getting an ice cream at an, a good old American ice cream shop. You know, I want my kids to know what that feels like. Totally. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I, we can maybe swap some tips here on how we're doing that. I mean, I, you know, I was always into sort of holidays and stuff growing up, but like, oh my God, when I, when it dawned on me that like, if I don't do Thanksgiving, like my children will have no idea what Thanksgiving is because it's nowhere in the culture here. It's nowhere in my husband's culture. If I don't sort of like carry that torch, they will have no idea. So I, I make a big deal out of Halloween and Thanksgiving. And um, 
And then, yeah, our older daughter really got into the Laura Ingalls Wilder audiobooks, like The Little House in the Prairie. So she listened to all of them, which I loved as a kid. So finding little ways to, you know, bring that in. And and also, you know, I love going back to my parents' house in Chapel Hill. And actually, we're, we're going back. I haven't been home now for the for two years. So um, it's the longest I've ever gone. Probably same for you. Um, so we're going back next week and we'll be at my parents' house for about three weeks. And we're putting our kids into like a, d- a day camp, just a local day camp, you know, the kind of thing that I would have done as a kid so they can maybe make some friends and get a bit of that experience. So I think through oh, yeah. summers and time, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that by the time they get to be, and so I should say my kids are, our kids are five and seven now. But by the time they get to be, you know, at an age where they're deciding where they want to study or where they want to work or where they want to live, they'll, they'll at least be familiar enough with the culture in the United States and also in the United Kingdom, because they have American and British passports, that they'll sort of have a sense of what the places are like. And and we talk a lot about, just as a family, about um, how, you know, daddy and I chose to live in France and you know, how it's important to find a place that you feel at home. And, you know, when you girls are older, you get to choose where you would like to live. So it's kind of like trying to start to have that conversation with them too. Yeah, that's cool. I had that thought of yeah putting them in a camp or something like that so they can have an experience that's independent of you, right? It's kind of like, hey, you're there and throw them to the, to the wolves and see... <laughs> See what happens at the summer camp. No, I, li- I like it though. It's a, I think it's a great idea. And yeah, got me thinking. Anyway, I wanted to ask about your time with the UN. It sounds like you've been doing some pretty interesting work. It's also taken you around the world. What have you been doing? How was that experience? I just want to learn more about that. Yeah. So I first started working for the UN. Um, I should say when we were in Sierra Leone, West Africa, it was um, my, well, then boyfriend, now husband's job that brought us down there. So he had a sort of um, a kind of a temporary contract with the UN. And I quit my job at a think tank in Geneva. I was working as an editor and got into journalism there. So that was, um, so we were, you know, our lives were sort of moved by the UN, but I wasn't directly involved. But that was a great place to be to break into freelance journalism, um, which maybe I can go into another time. But um, yeah, when we were in Kenya, I was working at the UN Environment Program. Actually, my husband was working for UN Environment Program as well. And I was in the communications division. So that was cool. I was there as a writer first and then kind of writer editor. And I started off doing kind of a little bit of whatever needed doing. Um, if they had a speech that needed writing or sometimes a press release, although I, I didn't do too much media stuff. Actually, they had a, a media team that did that stuff for the website. Um, I was kind of helping out. And then I kind of grew into a role that was sort of managing the editorial content for um, the UN Environment Program, the, you know, the website, but also reports and you know other publications that the organization is is putting out. So that was a really interesting role because I was working with um, colleagues in web design and graphic design and video production and social media. And I was kind of 
in charge of the words, <laughs> um, but also in charge of sort of, you know, kind of having all of those teams talking to each other. So that was, um, yeah, it was a really cool, it was a really cool experience primarily because I felt like I got to work with so many really talented colleagues and such, I mean, just working for the UN, it's, you know, our lead graphic designer at that point was Indian and our head, you know, of web guy was Italian and our social media guy was American. And, you know, you just, of course, had loads of, you know, excellent Kenyan colleagues and an Irish woman I worked with. And um, so it's such a, a rich sort of environment to be working in. Um, on the other hand, you know, sometimes when I think back to that time, we were, and, I, you know, I know on your podcast, you've talked about sort of the difference between expat and immigrant and, you know, what it means to be an expat. And, oh my gosh, working for the UN and living in Nairobi, that was about as much of the, you know, you can't get more sort of expat bubble than that. So I didn't really feel like I had a terribly Kenyan experience living in Nairobi. It was much more of an international experience. But yeah, I don't know, really interesting in its own way. Whereas here in France, you know, I guess I could call myself an ex expat, but I feel much more like an immigrant um, because I don't have that bubble around me, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, working for the UN, it, um, really cool. I mean, it's, you know, it has its, it's an enormous bureaucracy, right? So it has all sorts of rules and things take a really long time and you know, coming at, I had worked as a journalist for a while um, at that point when I started working for the UN. And, um, you know, in journalism, usually you're doing things really quickly. And there's a, there's a very clear hierarchy in terms of who makes a decision. Um, you know, it's like the editor makes the call, like you, the journalist, even if you're, you're by, your name is on there, you don't get the last say, especially in something like the headline or, you know, so it's very clear who makes the final call and who makes the decision. Whereas in the UN, it's like, everybody gets to have their say and, you know, somebody can, you know, I don't know, 10 people can agree, but one person disagrees. So you have to go back to the drawing board. So coming into that kind of culture after coming from journalism was a little bit like, Oh my God. <laughs> but you know, it's, it was, it was good for me to, it was a good sort of shift as well, but. Anyway. It's just a different way of doing business. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, Absolutely. Uh, another thing to adopt to like you have to adopt to many different things when you live in a foreign country or you know and if you're working internationally it's a it's a good reminder to keep to not just assume that your way is the only way right i mean i guess it's something that traveled that reinforces constantly <laughs> absolutely absolutely and i mean that that makes me think of something so you know especially especially excuse me with regard to um parenting, I found it so interesting because, you know, I was pregnant and had our first child in England. And then we moved to Kenya where I had our, we had our second child. Um, and now we're living in France or, you know, we have both of our children. And, um, and of course I grew up in America and have friends who've had children and my sisters had children in America. And so all the different advice about like pregnancy and little babies, it's like, it's, so different, you know, should the baby sleep in the bed with you or not? How much clothing does a baby need? Oh, and should a pregnant woman drink alcohol or no? Like it feels like when you're in a culture, it can feel like it's so black and white. And then you go to another place and they have the complete opposite interpretation of that, 
you know, they, they have a completely different perspective on that, on that question. And it, it just makes you think like, okay, all of these things that we take as givens are just like, it's all just so subjective, you know? So you just find your own way through. <laughs> That's been my approach. <laughs> right. It really is. We should talk a little bit about travel in Europe, I think. That's your focus, right? I mean, you, you essentially focus on that region, I would say. Are you specializing in Europe? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when we moved here from Kenya and I was like, okay, I'm, I quit the UN job. It's like, I want to get back into journalism. I'd done lots of travel features for the Washington Post and I'd done a lot of stories for the Guardian and stuff before. And I'd done one story for the New York Times travel section before we like moved to Kenya and I kind of got into UN work. And so I pitched the same editor I'd written for like five years before and like, you know, lo and behold, she wrote back and said yes to my pitch. And I was like, whoa, okay, that's cool. So I, um, so I developed a good relationship with this editor and, um, and here I am, you know, in the French Alps and like there she is in New York. Right. And working for the travel section and, um, you know, Americans are really hungry for travel content about our continent, Jason. And, um, so I, I found myself in a good position and, um, so what I, what I try to do, I mean, I started off um, doing 36 hours columns for the New York Times. I don't know if you um, might have come across this, they call it, yeah, yeah, like the column, 36 hours. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. It's been, you know, put on hold or it was put on hold for the pandemic, during the pandemic, and it's still, you know, they haven't sort of revived it to us. I don't know what the plans are. Um, but I started off doing 36 hours um, columns for then for them, and then um, started pitching more sort of in depth stories. Not necessarily, yeah. I mean, I guess not kind of your traditional travel feature, as in like not kind of travel essays, but more reported stories. Because in my journalism before, like when I was writing for the Guardian um, a lot, that was I was really doing news reporting. So I was trying to find a, a way to still write about travel, but do it in a slightly more thoughtful or like analytical or critical way than I had done in like the travel features I, I was writing for the Washington Post. So take the kind of lens, yeah, the journal, a journalistic lens to the travel and tourism industry. And yeah, and my, um, you know, the editors in New York were, were open to that and kind of let me give it a try. Yes. Yeah, so, and then from there, I was just kind of pitching more stories looking at how travel and tourism, you know, some of the, the challenges involved with it, but also the economic importance of the industry. You know, I, I'm just kind of fascinated by how travel and tourism affects the lives of the people who live in the places that are visited. I mean, I say this partially because we do live in a, I mean, you know, I said our village is so small like I think it's about 800 people. I'll have to check the official <laughs> sort of stats again, but it's a very small village. Um, but the nature area at the end of our road that I mentioned earlier um, gets half a million visitors a year, right? And those are mainly French people actually coming wow. to go hiking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's one access road and it's at the end of our front yard. So in at the height of the sort of French summer, you know, Grande Vacances, like last summer, last August, there were days when like the road in front of our house, like 
goes right by our chicken coop, you know, had, it was just like a parking lot. There were cars just bumper to bumper waiting to get into the parking lot at the end of like, that's like, you know, a mile and a half up the road. So, you know, so I think tourism, but then our village wouldn't like, you know, it would be without tourism, it would be a ghost town without the ski resort. There's a ski resort about 10 or 15 minute drive from here. Um, it would be a ghost town without tourism. So we really needed, um, like there wouldn't be a supermarket in our area without tourism, like, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, finding that, exploring that sort of balance between, you know, how tourism can support an area um, and even support a culture and how it can be damaging, um, I think it's just a really a really fascinating gray area. And that's kind of, yeah, I've chosen that gray area as basically like where I want to focus my journalism now. So I think there's a lot to a lot to dive into. Well, and just you were asking about, you know, am I focusing on Europe? And um, yeah, I think every story I've done for the New York Times has been about Europe, except for um, one about Antarctica, which they actually, my editors came to me and said, could you look into this for us? And that was, I didn't travel for that one. I just did that from uh, from here, doing lots of Zoom calls and stuff. But yeah, no, I think Europe, because it is, you know, the economy, most of the economies in Europe depend a lot on tourism, perhaps more so than in the United States. So, and we see it now with Europe opening up to um, Americans, vaccinated and unvaccinated um, now, whereas we see on the United States still fully closed, like not even a sort of quarantine option for non-Americans to get into the U.S. And it's like the U.S. doesn't need those visitors as badly as Europe needs its visitors from across the Atlantic. So I don't know, interesting sort of power dynamics mm. at play in the tourism industry as well. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and <laughs> immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been, and they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. 
that gray area you described is, I feel like, yeah, there is a whole heap of things to unpack (laughs) within that area. Let's kind of go through that lens as we explore some destinations, because I'd love to hear from you. You know, we're talking to travel lovers here, active travelers, people that are planning traveling, and a lot of people listening to this show, you know, maybe doing it longer than the typical sort of two-week vacation. People that like to travel long-term, have a real in-depth experience and all that good stuff. And as travelers, of course, we have the choice to go to other places and not contribute to some of maybe the over-tourism problems that people are trying to solve right now. But at the same time, a lot of those places are heavily trafficked for a reason because there are so many incredible things to see. You know, Amsterdam is a good example and I know you've written about it. It's a, it's just a beautiful city. There's so, so much rich history, culture, opportunities for growth and learning uh, about the world, about yourself, just in that one city. So how do you just kind of poo-poo that as a traveler and say, well, you know, I know it's really crowded, so I'm not going to go there. I want to I be responsible. So I, I just want you to speak to, you know, Europe opening up, what that looks like for people this summer specifically, and maybe within... Yeah, through the lens of kind of what we've discussed, like, you know, we could talk about some of the main spots, but also maybe some other places people should consider. I know that's like a multi-tiered question. I'm not supposed to do that, but I think you get my drift. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Well, maybe we'll start by... We can start by just talking about maybe some of the, the logistics of travel to Europe from the other side of the Atlantic. And I apologize to anybody who's listening from who isn't from the United States um, and who wants to travel to Europe because my reporting on this has been for the New York Times. So I've always come at it from the lens of if you're an American trying to get into the US, whereas if you're coming from Mexico or Japan or Australia, I, you know, I'm afraid I don't have specific <laughs> answers for you. As of sort of June 2021, it's a lot easier for Americans to get into Europe. And it started off with, okay, vaccinated Americans, fully vaccinated Americans um, can come in, you might still need to do a test. And now that the U.S. is officially on the green list um, in the EU, um, now in most cases, Americans, even who are unvaccinated, can get in if they have a negative test. And vaccinated Americans don't need to do, um, don't even need to have a test. So you know, okay. So I say that, but on the other hand, it's it's an immensely complicated subject, and the way the EU works is, you know, from Brussels they can make a recommendation and they sort of, you know, try to coordinate policies. But actually when it comes to controlling a country's borders, like those decisions are made by each country. So, which is why we have, there, there are a lot of different regulations. So it's always worth checking um, directly with the country that you're hoping to visit. And also, um, and just to say that the websites in general, the websites of the U S embassies are really really helpful and really up to date, um, and really good sources of information. So if I were, you know, sitting in Chicago and I wanted to go to, I don't know, Czech Republic or something, I would just go on the the website of the U S embassy in Czech Republic, and then you'll get your, you'll get some really good information there. But yeah, so coming back and, um, you talked about sort of some of the over tourism questions and stuff. And I think that's really interesting term, you know, because um, I wrote a story about Iceland actually last fall sometime, I think it was in October. 
Um, and this place, you know, that became sort of like almost the poster child of over tourism and maybe, gosh, I'm forgetting the years now, but like five or six years ago, maybe I didn't go to Iceland for the story. I was just doing it over the phone, but I interviewed a bunch of people in Iceland and they all hate, hated the term over tourism. I mean, obviously they wouldn't sort of embrace it being where they are, but they were like, you know, it's such a specific, like, it's just too broad to be helpful. It's not like, you know, when you talk about over tourism, what you really mean is like, you know, you need to look at a specific site, a specific sort of moment in time and look at what the specific issues are. Because, you know, a place like Barcelona or Amsterdam or Venice that might be famous for over tourism. Well, if you visit Amsterdam in January, February, like that's not going to, you know, you're going to have a very different experience. than if you go like the second week of August, you know, when you're thinking of planning your next European trip or spending more time in Europe, um, you don't sort of necessarily have a knee jerk like, okay, oh, Amsterdam has an over tourism problem. Ergo, I can never go see the Anne Frank house or something. Um, but just to think a little, a little bit more critically about, or just to be being aware of the issues that are at play there and thinking more critically about how you can do your best to sort of minimize, um, contributing to any sort of overcrowded problem, overcrowding problems um, while you're there. But in terms of, I think, you know, maybe your listeners are more sort of aware of this than kind of typical travelers. But um, I would really encourage people coming to Europe to explore some of the natural areas on the continent. I mean, I think most, I know certainly I, growing up, in the US, when I thought of Europe, I thought of Rome and Paris and Florence and Amsterdam. And, um, but um, there are so many like fantastic and really beautiful uh, national parks that people can explore. Um, natural areas, um, you know, I'm thinking of, well, of course, the Alps, where I am now. Um, but if you want to see Mont Blanc, you know, you can also see it from the Italian side and Courmayeur is beautiful. Um, in elsewhere in France, we have like the Camargue area, um, down in the South with flamingos and sort of salt marshes and the Calonque national park, which is sort of like a Mediterranean fjord kind of vibe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would encourage people to look for atypical sort of European, quote unquote, sort of European experiences to, um, to enjoy. And, you know, and that might be a good fit for people, especially this summer who, you know, maybe you're still looking for more fresh air or to avoid, um, cities. So I think it's a really good opportunity for people to explore more natural areas. And I can, I can go through other examples of places if you think that might be interesting. First of all, you had me at Mediterranean Fjord. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that sounds epic. All right, just a couple things going back to what you said before about travelers maybe being conscious of some of these things and over-tourism. And I I like what you said that that term is too broad to be helpful. I mean, just that phrase too broad to be helpful can apply to a lot of things in, in life and business, I feel. So I just wanted to pull that out. But, you know, as travelers also we are selfish, right? We want to see the things we want to see. We're paying money to go somewhere. We're putting carbon into the air. You know, there's that. So it's like, hey, we, we kind of want to make it worth it. Of course, it's it's got to be mutually beneficial. And I think what you said about 
maybe visiting in January or February or something like that because that that makes less of an impact on the city. But on the travel side, you, there are less people, less tourists. That means it's, it's you know probably cheaper to be there. It's uh, you're going to be able to see things without all the crowds. You know there are a lot of advantages on the traveler side as well for taking that approach, and it's kind of helping both sides of the coin, I'd say. So that's cool. And the natural parks and natural areas, I, I love. I love this suggestion, particularly for this summer. And I was just wondering, because I know you probably have a few more destinations, you can share them, but do you have some resources where people could go and maybe learn about some of these natural areas and, and kind of do their own research? I mean, you're a journalist. I know you do a lot of research, so I figured I'd ask. <laughs> yeah, that's a great... I mean, well, the... The first thing, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is I actually wrote a story about this for the New York Times um, back in December. Um, that was kind of more looking at the challenges facing these places. But to be honest, like in general, um, yeah, they a lot of national parks had more crowds than usual last summer, as just sort of Europeans were discovering their local national parks. You know, everybody wanted to get out hiking and stuff as soon as they were able to. Um, so you can go, I list, I interviewed a bunch of different sort of park managers, you know, from Germany to France to England to gosh, everywhere else. Um, but that has a cool list of places. And I think, you know, if you can avoid, especially, you know, if you can avoid the sort of four weeks of August or, you know, the four sort of main, maybe the last week of July for three weeks of August, then you can really avoid a lot of the crowds. But I mean, they're, yeah, they're in Norway. You should tell us about places to go. I've never been to Norway and I'm sure there's some stunning parks and and places. And then like while you answer that, I'll try to think of other resources that people can check. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, well, I mean that's a whole other episode in and of itself, right? So, but we can kind of roll with this uh, idea I think just as as a general travel planning tip for Europe this summer specifically like you said, getting outdoors in some of these areas. And I always find these nature areas, well, they're so diverse. And and also it's not just the natural area itself, but oftentimes it takes you to towns and villages and places that you might not have, otherwise wouldn't have gone through or to. And that's a big side benefit, I think, of going a little bit off the beaten track to a, a park that you heard was beautiful, but maybe it's not you know, some main thing, but you take that little extra effort and on the way, you know, you find the local restaurant or stand in some random town and you, you know, you, then you have all these incredible travel experiences in between, uh, to and from. So I think that's another advantage of visiting natural areas. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for Americans who might be used to, or anybody who might be familiar with the national park system in the United States, they might be, um, you know, a little bit surprised to see that, but maybe pleasantly surprised to see that a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times in Europe, the parks are slightly more lived in. They're slightly more kind of part of the cultural landscape. I'm thinking especially of England, like there's um, the New Forest, which is a beautiful area um, in Southern England. And it's really, it's a forest, but it's also kind of old farming landscapes and villages and you know like 600 year old pubs kind of tucked away in corners so it's it's less about kind of pristine 
wilderness than maybe you would get in like Glacier National Park in the United States and more about kind of preserving the entire landscape, which includes the sort of the cultural landscape as well as the natural landscape. And there are exceptions like the Swiss National Park, um, which is, there's only one in Switzerland. So it's the Swiss National Park is a really pristine and wild place. Um, pretty sure you're not even allowed to go camping there, but um, hiking there is beautiful. And in terms of um, yeah, I thought of, I, I remembered um, the resource that I used in writing that story. So the IUC, if you go to the IUCN, um, so the World Conservation Union, they have a fantastic list of protected areas. Um, I think it's called the Green List. And that's where I found a lot of the places that I ended up sort of mentioning in the story. So checking out the, and I interviewed a guy from IUCN whose name escapes me at the moment, but um, it's in the story. And uh, yeah, so their their green list is a fantastic resource for finding natural areas. I never heard of that. I see it now. I'm on it now. IUCNGreenList.org mm-hmm. for that specifically. And we can put that in the show notes. So that's a cool, you know, you can always get some good research hacks from uh, from journalists. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. You know how to dig around and find the good stuff. Oh, good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> part of the job uh, oh yeah google skills man it's um it is key ninja google skills well i i feel like we've covered a lot but at the same time i also feel like we have more to chat about so we'll ha- we have to have you back on some point if that's cool with you i'd like to absolutely chat uh, i know we're at the end of our time here i i had one last question i have a feeling i know what the answer is going to be but i have to ask it anyway Traveling to Europe in the summer of 2021, is it worth it? Ooh, is it worth it? I mean, you know, if you've been dying to get to Europe and, you know, for like either to see people or to have a cultural experience or to just like get out of your house or get out of your hometown that you've been stuck in for however long, absolutely, absolutely it's worth it. And, you know, I think people here are excited to have visitors again. I interviewed, actually, I did a story about Disneyland Paris, which was kind of fascinating in its own way, um, for the New York Times that ran recently. And um, I interviewed the the tourism minister of France for that one, which was cool. And he was just so like, he was, yeah, yeah. And he was so enthusiastic. He was like, please, you know, we we are excited to welcome Americans back. Please come back. Um, So... And then I did a story about Greece and they're really where, you know, one quarter of the country's workforce is in travel and tourism and a fifth of the country's economy is travel and tourism. They're really, they're really hurting and um, they would love to have visitors back. So I think, you know, absolutely like plan your trip, come on over, um, make sure you, you know, check the rules for your country, check, learn a little bit about what the... Um, the country you're visiting, like what its experience of the pandemic was like, just so you can, you know, be a little bit attuned to that as you're going around. Make sure, you know, if there's still some places still have curfews in place or nightclubs might still be closed so or masks might still be required. So just be sensitive to that. But otherwise, come and um, yeah, um, enjoy. Welcome back. <laughs> Love that. Well, thank you so much, Paige. And we'll link to all of the resources that you mentioned here in the show notes. Appreciate your time and yeah, great getting to know you and hope we can chat again soon. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. And um, yeah, uh, take care. Take care. have it my conversation with Paige. I want to thank her for stopping by and sharing her expertise. And you heard us wrap up at the end there, you know, travel to Europe this summer. Is it worth it? I think you could sub in any destination, right? Is it worth it to travel this summer? Well, that's up to you to decide. But regardless of whether you go somewhere or not, I think there is this renewed sense of hope in some places, in some ways, and optimism and just appreciation for things that we used to take for granted that seemed quote-unquote normal, just going out to dinner with a friend or sitting with a group of people and having a beer if you're able to do those things and you're fortunate like I am to be in a place where people are getting vaccinated and you're starting to have the ability to be social again. It is so nice. The other weekend, I went out back and sat with my couple of my neighbors, and we just played guitar and hung out and talked and laughed, and it was so cool because it was just a normal thing, right? Normal, quote unquote, but we just haven't done anything like that for so long, haven't been able to do anything like that for so long, and in that way, I feel that little travel buzz, kind of like you know, getting with a group of people that you vibe with that are new, getting to learn about them, getting to ask them questions, getting to share a bit about your culture. I guess for me, living in another country, it's a little bit different because everybody around me, not everybody, but I'm often in contact with other people that aren't from my home country. So I get to take in a lot of different cultural perspectives. And that's one of the super cool things about Living abroad. Speaking of that, I mentioned at the top of the show something that Paige did that I really love and something I've done as well. And I was wondering if it's something you've done or you've considered doing as somebody who loves to travel. But if you're somebody that also wants to have a home base somewhere, I really like what Paige did, which is just picked a place that she loved to live. And I know for some people that might be a bit gutsy, maybe not so much now if you're able to work remotely, but that's what I did when I moved to Colorado, when I was done traveling and I had been all over the United States many times and countries all over the world. I just picked a place that I loved. I didn't have a job there. I didn't have family there. It was just this place that I vibed with right? Now, that was in my home country, was Boulder, Colorado. But still, you have to build a life somewhere, anywhere you go. Might be a little harder overseas in different ways because you have uh, cultural differences and maybe visas and things like that, which is actually getting easier. But overall, the general concept is to just pick a place you love that has a lifestyle that you enjoy around you and just move there, right? And if you're a traveler, you kind of know the places you love. You know you like to have certain experiences. I think one of the things about travelers is we like to get out there and do things, right? So my move to Boulder was just to surround myself with other people that enjoy the outdoors, the outdoors themselves, the mountains, skiing, hiking, adventure, 
road trips, the American West, all the stuff that I, I loved. I wanted to be in that and near that. And maybe it was easier at the time. I didn't have kids or anything like that. But the same principle of just saying, hey, you know what? I'm not going to compromise the things that I love. I'm going to just pick a place that I want to be. I, I, maybe I'm not traveling right now, but I can still be around the things I love where I live. That's not always easy to do, family obligations and things like that. I mean, a good example of me right now, I'm in Norway. I don't know if this is the place I would pick, but at the same time, I have been able to pick the place within Norway that I really like. Now we live next to the woods, next to a lake. We're still near the city. So, you know, you can even adapt that to the country or the place you're in. If you're like, hey, I have to be in this place. Well, then find the best of that area, the best sort of blend of things that you want to have and, tr- and try to find a way to be there. I, I just think it makes a huge difference in your, your daily life. And certainly it has for us. And we talked about this on the show before, before we moved, we, we did a lot of pros and cons lists and we figured out exactly kind of what we wanted and where we wanted to be that could give us the best things that we wanted to have in our lives in our daily lives. So anyway, I just want to chat about that a little bit. Cause I thought that was cool. How Paige and her husband were just like, you know what? We're just going to go to this place in the French Alps because it's awesome. It's like, okay, that's cool. And I want to just pull that out because, hey, for some people listening, I know this was inspiring for me. Maybe it's inspiring for you. Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's something you want to do in the future, near future or far future. Either way, pretty cool stuff. So let me say uh, thanks also to everybody on my email list who wrote me back. I sent out an email the other day asking why are you on my email list? I really wanted to know and I asked people to respond and boy, did I get a lot of responses, which was awesome. So people just shared why and, you know, usually sending out a couple newsletters every month uh, with some curated content around travel, some thoughts, uh, some links to recent episodes and sometimes linking to other obscure things that I find interesting and whatever. Uh, If you want to hop on, by the way, you can just go to zerototravel.com and hop on the email list so you can find out about all the good stuff. You know, anytime we do workshops or challenges or different things like that, I always uh, send a note to the email list. So if you want to hear about stuff going on off the podcast, you can join up over there. If you've been putting it off, just hit pause now, go to zerototravel.com and sign up. Unless you're driving, of course, then don't do that. Okay, let me leave you with a quote now. I'm going to reach into the old quote drawer, pull out something from my Wisdom of the East calendar. Love that calendar. Okay, let's see. This one is from the Buddha who said, Thought which is well guarded is the bearer of happiness. There you go. Enjoy the day. And we'll chat soon. Thanks again for your time. Thanks for being here. Peace and love, my friend. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.